Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Thank you, Iana and Erin, for the cherubic voices. As always, uh, the angels are singing for us in human form. We are blessed. Our hearts are open to receive the word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have a cloud of witnesses from those unseen to those that are seen in the spirit world as well as in the literal world. Uh, we live in a place and in a time where people are watching us and witnessing what we're doing. And we're asking that we understand this topic because in these last days, God is waiting for and preparing the final witnesses to his work. And Satan is also doing the same thing. So we must know the difference between we're either witnessing for God or witnessing for the enemy of souls. So help us and bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. We're going to start a new topic, a new series, in fact. And it is based on a cloud of witnesses. That's a lot. Uh, we talk about the cloud <laughs> where we send our, you know, the messages that we that move back and forth around the earth today is, is found in a cloud. But it's a man-made cloud. We want a God-made cloud. But we don't have to simply think that there is because God intentionally used the word clouds. And those clouds refer to in many instances, the host of angels, numberless, that not only are belting the globe as his spirit messengers and ministering spirits, but also witnessing what is going on outside of our hearts and inside of our hearts. So I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 4, and we will read. I'm reading from the King James Version, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Paul, who is the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, wrote, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So we pick up from this the inspiration to move forward and understand who this great cloud of witnesses are and what they do for us, and their, you know, the role in the in the plan of salvation, in a great controversy, and in the plan of redemption that is now reaching its soon to reach its climax. Now, I'd, I'd like to uh, invoke a, a passage from one of the uh, 
our earliest writers, uh, and he's one of my favorite writers, by the way, uh, M.L. Andreessen. He has a commentary on that particular verse, verses in his book of Hebrews. And I, I would recommend that you, you get a book of this. In Hebrews 12, 1 to 4, pages 510 to 512 of his book, he writes of, it makes his commentary on this passage. The figure of a race was not new to the dwellers in Jerusalem, for at this time all the sports of Greece had been introduced among the Palestinians, and the foot race was a common spectacle. Doubtless all had been or all had seen the athletes preparing for the contest by previous abstinence from all things harmful and had watched them throw aside all but the most necessary garments in order they that they might not be hindered in running the race. So the apostle here uses their knowledge of these races to point a lesson of the Christian race. And so referring to the, that cloud of witnesses, the picture presented to us is that of a race wherein we are the partakers. The cloud of witnesses are those mentioned in chapter 11. It's often called the faith chapter uh, or the Bible hall of faith, as I would call it, who despite handicaps and hindrances of all kinds, they joyfully finished their course and thus they bear witness, that's another cloud, of the fact that the race is not to the swift, but to those who endure. That's quoting from Ecclesiastes 9.11, which we'll read in a while. To excel in this race, we are to lay aside every weight or encumbrance that we may run the easier. As an athlete about to run strips himself of every hindering garment, so we are to lay aside everything that may impede our progress. And I remember what Ellen White wrote that self is our greatest enemy. Um, the weight that, that's spoken of here is, is also known, or the race that is spoken of here is, as you will discover, you and I go through the study, that race is the race for immortality. Bearing that in mind, that is the race that every Christian should be running for. Now, you would say that's, that's a no-brainer. When you teach that the soul is immortal, why would you seek for immortality? If you teach that the soul has already been saved, then you're beyond temptation, which is entirely contradictory to the nature of the great controversy which we are in yet. And we have yet, yet obtained the full victory that Christ uh, contemplated in the plan of redemption. Now, this great cloud of witnesses, it meant, he did mention about um, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. So we're looking at two things going on here, the race and the battle. 
They're not synonymous, but they belong to the bigger picture and to, pick, to, to reveal to us the nature of, of the plan of salvation, the nature of the great controversy and our roles and where we are today on two fronts, okay? Running the race and fighting the battle. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes 9, 9 to 11. And I want you to read it very carefully because this talks about two sides. The side of those who are living that goes to the other side, which is the cases of the dead. One is not the same. We must we must keep this in mind, okay? Because Satan's effort is to blur the difference between the two. There is nothing common between life and death. Life ends in death, not begins again. So let's read what the wise man was inspired to write for all generations, particularly in this time when we're struggling on the issue of death and life. Verse 9. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Verse 10 says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and place or time and chance happen to all. Verse 11 goes back to the issue or the topic of death and life. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. Verse 5, mark this, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward. Remember, this world is fond of posthumous recognition and posthumous rewards and being placed in the halls of fame. Not in the Bible. Because Solomon says, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's why we're constantly trying to bring them back. Verse 6, also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Where? In death and in the grave. And neither have they any portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. If anyone is so fixated on the sun, remember what the wise man brought. Anything under the sun, subject to mortality. From life, ending in death. That's the first death. Now, on these clouds, the word cloud. You know, in the lands where rain is infrequent, as in the Bible lands, it's not frequent there. It was precious. So rain clouds were watched for eagerly by the people. And thus the Bible writers, they frequently mention clouds. And uh, we can go through those lists. 
but we won't do that because it will take so much of our time. Uh, but some of them are found here. Judges 5 verse 4, Job 26 verse 8, so forth, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. But they were mentioned notably in figures of speech. So that, for example, the vapor quality of clouds is used to illustrate life's vicissitudes. And for Israel, during the wilderness wandering, the presence of the Lord was marked by a pillar of cloud, which became a pillar of fire by night, Exodus chapter 13. But under special circumstances, God's glory filled the temple, and the Bible says, like a cloud. You can see that 1 Kings 8, verse 10 and 11, or 2 Chronicles 5, 14, Ezekiel 10, verse 4. Now, the verses of scriptures included in definition of clouds are numerous. But I'd like to go to one of them and then expand on it as we continue uh, delving and diving into, deep into this topic. Um, Ecclesiastes 11.3, also of Solomon. He wrote, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree falls towards the south or towards the north, in the place the tree falleth, there shall it be. Uh, this is interesting. You know why? Because in the Bible, trees are a symbol of men. That's why when you read Matthew 7, 16 to 19, Jesus explained this. He said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And death which is central to the plan of salvation, meaning to say, were there not sin, there would be no death. And if there was sin, no death, there was no plan of salvation. But the fact that there is a plan of salvation, this problem still exists because Paul writes that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So death is inevitable. It is inescapable. It is the inescapable end of all mortals. Because we're in Romans 6.23, everyone knows this. The wages of sin is death. And then in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, God in Christ alone has immortality. Where do we read that? Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.14 and 16, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. And then he instructs the true believer to do this, patiently continue seeking immortality and eternal life. What did we, what did he write here in, in uh, let's read this in Romans 2, 6 and 7. It says there, God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Sounds very familiar. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing, that's works. They seek glory and honor and 
immortality and eternal life. You can read that for yourself. Romans 2, 6 and 7. Now, if the soul is naturally, substantially, and essentially immortal, as is averred by many religions, that doctrine common to all religions, in fact, worldwide, whether heathen, pagan, including the Christian mainstream, unfortunately, it's not, it's not biblical. Then Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, venerated by them, they call him St. Paul, would never have exhorted the church then and now as part of the Holy Scriptures in the New Testament, in his epistles, he wrote that to patiently continue in well-doing, which would be part of seeking glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. And he also tells us when and how this eternal life and immortality was manifested, when and how. For 2 Timothy 1, 7, 9, and 10. 2 Timothy 1, 7, 9, and 10. For God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death at his resurrection and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. A very important passage that you, the Christians, all of New Testament Christians, you should go through this very carefully. Let it speak for itself. 2 Timothy 1, 7, 9, and 10. Now, the Bible speaks of time servers. Now, who are those? Who are the time servers? Time servers are actually only aim. Their only aim and ambition and goal in this life is to achieve earthly, temporal fame, success, glory, honor, riches, power, the approbation, the applause and adulation of their fellow mortals. They have hardly any regard, much less a working knowledge of, and therefore no desire for the beauty of holiness, the surpassing peace of a guilt-free conscience, or the power of righteousness that are all offered freely by Christ. Therefore, they hardly have any inkling, no clue, as to the inestimable value of things, of the things of eternity. Until, most oftentimes, it is already too late. Why? For they have already, as the Bible says, reached the point of no remedy. And that lone door of God's pleading mercy has finally been closed by the hand of God's justice and righteousness. Such was the terminal condition of the whole antediluvian generation in Noah's time. And as Jesus said himself, as it was in time of Noah, 
so shall it be in the days just preceding the coming of the Son of Man. And so, based on this time and place principle, it is not so much when, time, as it is the place that is spiritually, not physically, that we Christians should be concerned about where and upon whom and what were the supreme affections and interests of our hearts and minds focused on when we reach the point of that. How was our current standing with God and our fellow men? Had all the sins we have knowledge of been repented and forgiven? Towards what direction or trajectory was our life course when we breathed our last? Simple. Was it heavenward or earthward? You've probably heard or read these profound words penned by my favorite author, uh, Ellen White, where she wrote, Only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, the Bible speaks of only two kinds of death, two kinds of resurrections, two kinds of eternal rewards, an end of mortal man's earthly journey, and that reward awaiting everyone at the end of his day, or simply, yet definitely, uh, there are, this is what they call a dichotomy, one or the other. It is either or, there's nothing in between, there are no gray areas, no twilight zones, no halfway in between heaven and hell, and most certainly, absolutely, no place called purgatory. It's nowhere in the Bible is found. See, we, we either we choose the straight and narrow way in which few are found within and leads to eternal life, or we choose to not default into, we choose to the broad and easy way in which many are found therein, which only ends as Jesus said, Matthew 7, 13 and 14 ends in destruction or eternal damnation. That's what it is. And therefore, you know, as witnesses, we are either witnessing for the truth or we are not witnessing for the truth. And since there's no neutral ground in this battle, this march, this race, we are witnessing against the truth. So it is a certainly a soul-destroying lie to believe, and much worse, to repeat and promote doctrines, assertions, and ideas that all roads or all paths or all ways will eventually lead to heaven. Sounds familiar? Jesus never said, he never said, I am one of the ways, or I am one of the truths, or I am one of the sources of life. He says, rather, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, in the English language, is a self-limiting article. Now, 
Let's look at the death of the righteous. And there are witnesses to this, a great cloud of witnesses, human beings, heavenly beings, evil spirits. The Bible, in the death of the righteous is also called the dead in Christ, or those who die in Christ. And therefore they, as Paul says, they sleep in Christ. Also described elsewhere as asleep in their grave, the dusty graves of the ground. Or as we go back to Genesis, they have returned to the dust of the ground or now ashes for those who were either burned as saints in the stake or cremated today. What are they awaiting? The death of the righteous. In Luke 14, 14, it's called the resurrection of the just. And angels are sent to help to, to see them through the resurrection. They are raised in that resurrection of the just to receive the gift and reward of incorruption first, immortality, and then the crown that is called eternal life. They are called the worthy disciples and saints, commandment-keeping saints of the last days, who will, and I want to linger a bit on this. You know, we often say, um, uh, and it was a promise, it's so common today that we need to analyze this. He told his disciples who didn't quite get everything yet. They still had this overhang and hangover of what kind of kingdom Jesus had come to inaugurate. But Jesus bore with them patiently. They, eventually, they would learn, and eventually they did. But at that point, when he told them he would be going away, he knew the sadness that would hit their heart and despondency and despair. That's why he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then here comes that phrase, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But in contrast to that, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Did you give that thought? Would God still be preparing mansions if they were already there? He set a place for you. And then he made it clear, so that where I am, there you may be also. Think about that, my friends. He, you see, these are the worthy disciples and saints of the last days who will inherit the place, not mansions, the place that he went to prepare. It took him that all the time to prepare till now. Not mansions, they were there already. day. In my father's house, there were many mansions. And so this, he says, I go to prepare a place for you so that wherever I am, there you may be also. Now this, this includes, of course, includes all those things which Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, <laughs> Those things which I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the hearts of men, what God has prepared for them that love him. First Corinthians 2.9. Uh, so that, that's what Christ went to prepare for them that love him. Now, the death of the wicked. 
which is witnessed to by a great cloud of witnesses, both spirit world and human beings. This state or condition or place of the death of the unrepentant, world-loving, incorrigibly self-indulgent, self-pleasing, self-worshipping, proud, and rebellious sinner who rejects God's offer of forgiveness, a new life, sanctification, and victory over the world, the flesh, the devil, they perish in their sins or die in their sins because they have refused and rejected Jesus, the source of life. His name, Jesus, means the Savior who saves from sin. Matthew 121. In the last book of the Bible, where the 66 books meet and end, and all biblical truths meet and end as well, this death, you'd be surprised, not really, is called the second death. Therefore, there's the first death. Now, I like this cloud of angels because it gives me an assurance. And I want you to go through this very carefully because if you think you're alone, and sometimes we believe we are alone, we are never actually never alone. But we also need to beware because those beings that keep us company are either evil spirits or the angels of God. They are witnesses. They're influencers as well. In Acts 1 verses 9 to 11 on, and I'm going to read this from the Bible. And I want you to do that too uh, in the spirit and in the context of what we are studying for now um, to understand the, the beauty and the power found in God's word in the assurance that we have by the experiences uh, of, of his people in the old and new. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday and forever. So his provisions are one and the same. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And I want you to read it from your own Bible Was I read it from here. Verse 9 says, He told his disciples who were right there on the mount, okay, waiting for him to ascend. He says, But you shall receive power. And when he had spoken these things, while they, the disciples, beheld he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And, and verse 10 says, and while they looked steadfastly, meaningful words, towards heaven, not towards her, as he went up, not down, behold, two men. Two men stood by them in white apparel. Remember, Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, you will, you and I will be surprised how all throughout there has always been a minimum of two witnesses, two or three. Okay. This man in white apparel in verse 11 says, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same, oh, look at that, same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. You are witnesses of his ascension, witnesses of his resurrection earlier, his death, his ascension. You will also be witnesses of his return. That same Jesus. And so, what was the result? It says, they, they returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, and they were not sad anymore. They were happy. These were blessed witnesses to the pillars of the gospel. So, I love what it tells us right here. And I will just take a portion of this from from the Acts of the Apostles or the Desire of Ages. We will end right there as we move on to the next uh, subtopic on this. Those two angels, who were they? On page uh, 831, we read that these two angels were in the company that had been waiting in the shining cloud. So, you know, when I was young, when I read this, I said, clouds, oh yeah, clouds, those are the clouds, of the they're not. They are the clouds of angels. Here, these two angels were actually in the company of that cloud of angels that had been waiting in a shining cloud to escort Jesus to his heavenly home. Who were they? The most exalted of the angel throng. They were not named. It's okay. They were the two who had come to the tomb of Christ at his resurrection. They were the two that had been with Christ throughout his life on earth. Remember that? Well, he, Jesus had the two most powerful angels on 24-7 security detail assigned to him from the manger uh, to the cross up to his resurrection. Isn't that an assurance for us too? With eager desire, all heaven had waited for the end of his tearing in a world that was marred by the curse of sin. At the time that in the ascension had come now for the heavenly universe to receive their king. Question, did not the two angels long to join that host, the cloud, that welcomed Jesus? They did, but in sympathy and love for those who him he had left. They lingered and waited to give comfort to them. That's why we understand what Hebrews 1.14 means, referring to this cloud of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Hebrews 1.14. So on that note, we'd like to close our worship service today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that there are witnesses to what has been going on since the beginning to the end. That they will speak eloquently on the day of our judgment. And so we understand, and we should understand today, that these are witnesses given in order not to accuse us but to acquit us if we live in harmony with your will. So that even if those, the accusers, Satan's called the accuser of the brethren, in heaven they stand 
as witnesses to the truth as it is in Jesus. They have given honor, glory, and honor to his name. They receive the reward, the reward of eternal life that will be witnessed by the whole universe. My prayer is that we shall belong to that group of both witnesses and those who are being witnessed to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.